Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. My guest today is the feisty, funny, and fabulous Lisa (laughs) O'Neill. Lisa has been described as a human version of Barocca, and by the end of this episode, you will fully understand why. She's also one of my most favorite people because she has this great energy that she just exudes out to everybody. She's phenomenally positive, and she has this great ability to cut through the shit and tell it like it is, but always with love. So I'm fully expecting there to be a few F-bombs as we go through this 45 minutes. So if you're a sensitive little soul with the ears, be warned, there may be a couple of words. What I love about Lisa as well is that she wants us to live big lives and become the best version of ourselves. And we will definitely talk about that. She used to be the fashion editor of New Zealand Women's Weekly. And today she's the author of three books, a highly sought after conference speaker and MC, and a mentor to loads of very fortunate women and a couple of men, and also to me. So thank you, Lisa, for joining us today, and welcome. Oh, that's a big intro. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I know, I kind of rambled. <laughs> I'll try not to swear. I'll try and behave. I'll leave that. Oh, look, I've warned everybody now, so feel free. No, I can do what I want. <laughs> what if what falls out then? Excellent. What I would like to know, the first question I always ask people to sort of set the tone is what does connection mean to you? Oh, connection means everything to me because I think without connection, we've got nothing. Connection to me means synergy, really. Without energy, we're nothing, right? So um, for me, my whole life, I spend my whole life basically gathering energy, giving energy and finding ways of sourcing energy and refining energy. And for me, without energy, you know, we communicate in so many ways and I think it's all about our energy. So connection for me is all about how we communicate our energy you know, when you meet people and you just feel that instant connection, to me, that's an energy match. So yeah, I, I love it. And I think being connected to other humans is what we all ultimately seek. I absolutely agree with that, about that instant connection. One of my dearest friends, we met at a leadership conference course, residential thingy, when we both worked in government about 17 or 18 years ago. And the way the facilitator had us introduce each other was to say to the group, introduce yourself as your mother would introduce you. And I thought that was pretty clever. That's funny. And she introduced herself as her mother would introduce her. And she used almost the exact same words that my mother used when she would introduce me to anybody with the exception of the name. And I just looked at this girl and went, we are going to be friends forever. And three months later, we went to Vietnam on holiday together, and we have been firm friends ever since. And we didn't even speak for the five days we were at this residential leadership program. We said about a few words to each other, but on the last day, as we were all leaving, we both gravitated to each other and said, we need to exchange contact details because we know we'll be friends for life. 
That's so cool. Yeah. I have I've had that experience probably four times in my life with four really significant friends, like really important. So I met my husband when I was 14 and I took one look at him and I said to my friend, I'm going to marry him. And she said, he's never going to speak to you. <laughs> and he still doesn't speak to me and we're very happy to be married. But I knew the minute I looked at him, I was like, I know. And it took me probably four years to bring him around. So at our wedding, I said, I've been with Mark 12 years and he's been with me eight. (laughs) I love that. Because when I met Sean, my husband, he said to me on our first date, I love you. Oh, And I'm just like, holy shit, what is going on here? (laughs) People underestimate and second guess it. And it's like when you have a connection with someone, whether it's you look across the room and you just go, oh, I get you and you get me, or whether it's a conversation or what it is. And I don't think people put enough emphasis on that. Like I'm really big on following that. Like I, I remember going up to a guy in a room and I just said, I really like you. And he went, pardon? (laughs) Sorry, really like you I really like everything about you and he went oh you're quite interesting and we just started talking and we got on really well and he was a bit freaked out and I guess I don't know maybe because I was a woman and he was a man that he sort of thought that, but I was like no no I don't like you like that I just really like you like I like your energy and I like your essence you know and I spent 25 years as a stylist helping people to improve their connections through their visual messaging and it's like you know how you turn up and how you present yourself tells people a lot about you and it's like you need to be in charge or as you know of every area of your communication right because it's like how you show up in the media and social media how you show up online how you show up in a room how you show up in an email everything is an indicator of you and people just miss that so much and it blows my mind that people don't put more effort into their connection and their responsibilities to that. Yeah, I think that too. And I see so many examples, as you would, of people who get one thing right and one thing glaringly wrong. And it's the glaringly wrong that often suggests that you got right real or is that fake? Yeah. And some people, you know, do, you see companies all the time, they pull something off, they do an amazing ad or an amazing post and they just nail it. And it's a Mm. fluke because then the next eight posts are terrible or the next eight ads are awful or the next eight pieces of their communication dies. But yeah, it's, it's so interesting. But I just think being in charge, one of my big messages is about people being on purpose. And it's like, what is the point? What are you trying to do? And are you on purpose right now? Are you dressed for your purpose? Is your energy right for what you're trying to achieve today? Like all of that stuff, so, which helps you connect. What's your right? purpose? What's my purpose? Yeah. My purpose is to make people better. I adore self-improvement, absolutely adore it, but I do it with a lot of comfort and love. I don't like aggressive self-improvement where people are whipping themselves to be good enough. I think it's about what do you want and how do we get you there rather than everyone should be perfect and everyone should achieve this. For me, it's really got to be bespoke and completely designed for you by you I think that's the key it needs to be designed by you and you can definitely get some some guidance and some support but if you don't for me at least if I don't design my own life then why should somebody else do it and if I don't design my own life then I'm not going to believe that it can happen or be the best person I can be or live authentically or live in that real sense of 
expressing myself. So many people who don't, they're not, they don't sort of live their lives and they end up with their lives living them. So they just end up going through the motions and their lives just kind of live them and just drag them along rather than actually them having any control or power over who they are and what they're doing. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? Do you have any advice? For women who are trying to find themselves? Oh, my God, I have so much advice. <laughs> so so we've, we've got half an hour. Days <laughs> of advice, Mel. No, well, I think the most important thing you can do is get to know yourself. People, especially women, they need to get to know themselves. And I say especially women because in my experience, women change so much. I always think men tend to get bigger and smaller, but they stay kind of the same, but they just become either a more amplified or a more reduced version of themselves. Whereas women actually go through these massive changes and we physically go through a lot of changes and stages in our lives. And I think that's the difference. Like with, you know, with our wiring and I run these retreats called Repotted where I take women away and every five years we repot them and redesign their lives and what do they want their life to look like and what do they want it to feel like and how will it be and what do they want the next five years to be about and especially women who have families they tend to get stuck in the you know you get stuck in the oh I've got a baby and then you get stuck and I've got a little kid and then you oh I've got a big kid and and they lose themselves in the different stages and they often put themselves down to be there for other people and their families but they forget to pick themselves back up Mm. and they sort of wake up one day and they're all bitter and twisted and everyone's left and they're like well what about me and then they sort of start seething with resentment and getting all kind of angry with the world and it's actually just because they haven't really filled themselves up or honoured themselves. Yeah years ago I worked with a woman who I worked for a small business and my boss was asked by a friend if she could hire a mutual friend because her husband had left her, her kids had grown up and she needed to get a job and she hadn't worked in 25 years. And it was so hard for her, which I didn't appreciate at the time because I was in my mid-20s and first job from uni and, you know, trying to make my own way. But I remember she had one responsibility every day and that was to go and collect the mail. And everything else that she did, we were there to guide, provide guidance and support. But she was so overwhelmed and stressed and anxious about having to get the mail every day because that was more than she'd actually, she'd never had, she hadn't had responsibility in 25 years because her husband was controlling. Right. It was a really big lesson to me to not ever let somebody else have that much influence and control over my life in such a negative way. But I just felt so awful for her because she just couldn't cope with the world. And obviously at the same time as this was happening, she was grieving the loss of her marriage, which she hadn't seen coming apparently. But I just think it's so important that as women we don't get so caught up in doing things for other people, whether it's our children or our partners or whoever it might be. Yeah, and culturally women tend to lead other people's lives. Like, you know, men sort of get choice. Like even even with um, when you're a male child or a, or a teenager, it's like what do you want with your life and what do you want? And then with women they tend to get caught up either in what their families want them to do or what their partners want them to do or and then they become sort of a victim of what their children want them to do and they just have so much input from everyone except them and we're so conditioned to be in service that it's detrimental to ourselves is the biggest thing I find and I was really like I've got four children but I remember when I had my first child just being really really aware that actually he could leave me 
And if I was any good, he would leave me because that was my job. My job was to make him so awesome that he would want to leave me. And then I was like, wow, and my husband actually could leave any time. And I'm this kind of, what have I got left? And I remember thinking, actually, all I've got is me. And that was at the age of 29. So I sort of then just started on this whole, how can I make me better? And how can I have a life I love? And how can I do stuff I'm proud of? And how can I be who I want to be? And that was really the beginning. And then other people were like, oh, you're really lucky. I'm like, it's not bloody luck. This is a plan. Yeah. I didn't win this in the raffle this is a plan. So I, while I went on and had four kids, I certainly didn't do it at the expense of myself. And I think that's really important too. Like I've got children who now see that it's completely fine for, to have a mother that works and it's completely fine to have say a dad that's at home as a caregiver and just being an example to them is to be limitless and not to actually put all those boring bloody constraints around themselves that so many people do which I think is really boring yeah particularly I'm not a parent but I think it's so important to show examples of what different relationships can look like and that you don't need to be the traditional stereotypical husband works woman stays at home it's important for your daughters it's also important for sons and I say to a lot of women I said your daughters are watching you going oh my god I don't want to grow up because I'm just going to become frumpy lumpy and boring yeah and so like with that of going, oh, imagine being, you know, the last thing I want is for one of my kids to be like, oh, imagine being mum. Like, you know, it's just awful. It's like you want to show them that actually being older and wiser is great and that, you know, they see how much I love my life. I never apologize for working because I'm like, I love working. Like, I love it. I'm a better parent when I work. Um, I absolutely adore what I do and I never say, oh, I'm so sorry, I've got to go to work. I'm like, yippee, I'm going to work. Yeah. And you should have something that you love this much because your life will be amazing, you know, if you find something you love. Absolutely agree. When I was a teenager, my mother went back to college and studied textiles and spinning and weaving. And she really set that example that too old to go back to university or you're not too old to continue learning. And she left school at 15 because they couldn't afford for her to continue. She was born in 1936. So post-war era needed to bring in some money was the third of four children and had a sister who was a lot younger than her who, you know, so her mother couldn't easily go out to work. And she just taught me that you're never too old to chase your dreams, but you have to create your own opportunities and you have to do things for you that you love. And I'm sure I gave her way too much guilt than she needed by, you know, when I was stuck outside the house for hours on the afternoons where she was late home. But In hindsight, I think how lucky was I that she did that and how lucky was I that she supported both my brother and I to um, become independent from a younger age than was often the case back in the 70s and the 80s and to um, teach us that I didn't, to teach me especially, that I didn't have to go from school to being somebody's wife to having children right. and to not having an opportunity to do things that gave me pleasure. And it was such an important lesson. Yeah. And, you know, pleasure is such a big word. I'm ashamed pleasure seeker. I live for pleasure. I love pleasure. And I think people deny themselves. You know, it's like I wear clothes that feel nice. I go places that feel nice. I do stuff that fe- everything I do is about how does that make me feel? Because when I feel amazing, it increases my energy, right? Which means I'm nicer to be around. And it's like when you deny yourself stuff, you become shriveled and shrunk and not as nice, you know? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing my parents taught me is they used to have separate holidays because they had very diverse interests. And dad would go on a ski trip with his mates every year, you know, to North America or to Europe. And mum went on a couple, but wasn't really interested. And so she did weaving and spinning and craft show stuff, which she was happy with. And it was fantastic. But I remember shortly after I'd met Sean, we were planning a holiday together. And he at the last minute said, I don't know whether I want to go. And I said, well, that's fine. I'm going anyway. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I don't care if you don't want to go. Obviously, I'd like you to come with me, but I'm not cancelling because you're changing your mind. Who does that? Then I thought probably many, many other women. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that's really powerful. You know, it's like know your own mind and and know what you like and, and do that. And so we've always had Mark and I have very diverse interests, so he loves sport. I can't stand it, and I don't want to go and watch the tennis with you. I would actually rather chew on my own foot. I couldn't think of anything worse. So you go to the tennis and hang out, and I'll go and hang out and do something I love, but, you know, I don't like obligation. Exactly. I think there's a few things that you need to do that you don't like in a relationship to support your partner, but I'm not playing golf with my husband because he loves it. (laughs) I'm sorry. I gave it a go and I tried it. And so I made an educated and informed decision that that was not a sport I ever needed to play again. Perfect. (laughs) So what are a couple of other things that we can do as women in particular to become more connected to ourselves and to the people we love and to the people we work with? I think spending time with yourself and getting to know yourself and ultimately learning to like yourself, like learning to become your own best friend is actually the greatest gift you can give yourself. So many women, they have so much self-hatred and so much comparison and so much I'm not good enough. And they don't treat themselves very well, like with their the voices inside their head. And, you know, they constantly sort of like, you know, I always say to women, if, if I came to your house and said to you, oh, Mel, I've put on 10 kilos and you'd go, oh, Lisa, you look lovely. Don't worry about it. But the minute you have one muffin, you're like, oh my God, you're so fat. You know, you're so horrible to yourself about stuff. And and we just treat ourselves really badly. And we're much nicer to other people than we are to our own self. So I think being really gentle and kind to yourself is so important. And I've tried to teach my daughters that. I'm like, you know, if you're having a rough day, just give yourself permission to curl up on the couch and go, this needs some space. I need some comfort. You know, I, I want to be surrounded by pillows and I don't want to go out and pretend to be happy with all my friends. I just want to curl up in a ball. Mm. And I think giving yourself permission to be you, but first of all, you've got to find out who you is. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we don't do a good job of helping people to work out. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's particularly important for those of us who are introverts, who draw our energy from being alone I often feel that we live in this extroverted world where everybody is expected to be on all the time. And when I was younger, I used to block out nights in my diary to just stay at home and watch TV or read a book on the couch and be alone. And I still do that (laughs) because like you, I travel a lot and spend lots of time with people. But that was my way of looking after myself. And I think a lot of people forget that that's important to do. People think self-care is going to a day spa and it's like, no, self-care actually going, I'm going to go and read my book and I don't want to talk to anyone. Exactly. And to me, that's really important. Every morning I sit outside with my dog and have a coffee and I'm not interested in giving that up for anybody. I love sitting, even if it's raining, I don't care. I'm quite happy. I just like to sit on my porch and look at the look at the weather and drink coffee and talk to my dog. Yeah. And it's so important for me just to have that time to adjust to the day and think about things and he's good company, you know? And I, re- I love that. Like I love... Finding whatever you need to do to make your day 
to start your day really beautifully or to finish your day really beautifully? And what do you do if you're actually feeling really discombobulated and out of control? How do you manage yourself? Like what is your go-to strategy? You know, if you're feeling anxious or you're feeling stressed or what do you do to change that behavior and manage your state? And I think that's really important because I think we all have problems and we all have days where life is too hard, but it's like, what are your strategies for it? And if you don't know yourself, you can't develop a strategy that's going to actually help you. I was just going to say, I've got so many friends who I will say to, are you okay? You look a bit anxious or you look worried. And they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's like, well, you know, you're not fine, but not only are you not fine, you aren't actually recognizing that you're not fine because you don't know yourself as well as you should, which by the time you hit mid-40s to early 50s, which is how old the majority of my friends now are, and I can't believe I just said those numbers, (laughs) if you don't know yourself by then, then the hell are you waiting for work it out take some time alone to work out who you are and what you love to do and what pushes all your buttons so that you can tell the people around you with love please stop doing that because it annoys me or give me more of that yeah exactly the thing is I say to people all the time what do you want and they go I don't know and they don't know because they've never been asked and because they've never allowed themselves the opportunity to consider what do I want and, you know, I spend a lot of time with women saying, come on, what do you want? Like, what do you, what do you want to wear? What do you want to eat? Where do you want to go? And they're just like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And they actually do know, but they haven't sat still long enough to consider the options and go, hmm, actually, I feel like pasta. And then they go, oh, I can't have pasta because that's too high carb and I shouldn't eat that. And it's like, oh, shut up. Just go with I want pasta. Because, you know, you go, oh, have a lettuce salad instead. Oh. You still want pasta after you've eaten all your lettuce. And you end up having both. So it's like, you know what, just do what you want. And your life's so much nicer if you do what you want. I strongly believe that we are designed to be on the planet, to learn about ourselves, to give ourselves what we need and what we want, and then to go. That's kind of the point. And life can be so short. If you don't make the most of it and treat yourself as kindly as you can, then one day it could be over and you haven't been nice to yourself ever. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you can't be nice to you, then there's no hope, right? But if you can't be nice to you, then why should somebody else be? If you don't put out that vibe that I'm worth kindness and I'm worth generosity and I'm worth everything I want, then you're going to get passed over for opportunities time and time again. Because if you don't believe you're good enough, why would somebody else? Yeah, it's so true. And it's also like, it's like, you know, women looking for relationships and it's like, you don't even like yourself. So how can you expect someone else to like you? You don't value yourself. So it's like, you've got to actually value yourself and understand yourself before you can expect other people to. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I was reading your latest book again the other day and I love it. And what I love is it's called The Lickable Third. How did you come up with that title and what does that mean? (laughs) It's quite an old family joke, really. So as children, my brother and I used to lick stuff as ownership. So, you know, like if my mother made biscuits, my mother would bake and then she would say, right, you can't, you're not allowed a biscuit until 10 o'clock. So at 10 o'clock, we were allowed to have a biscuit, but the biscuits had been sitting cooling on the bench for like 
20 minutes. And so we would look at them and there was always one that was like really big or looked really chunky or looked really had extra chocolate chips or there was something. So my brother would pick up the big biscuit and lick it and then put it back. And then I definitely wouldn't take that biscuit because he'd lick it. <laughs> and we used to do it with each other's candy canes at Christmas. We'd like lick them and then I'd be like, oh, you can have that. I'm not eating it now that you've licked it. So we just had this ongoing sort of thing that we did. And so I've always sort of said, oh, my God, I love that I could lick it. You know, like it was just a a thing that I've always thought, oh, yum, I could lick that and I want it. Years ago, I was going to an event and there was a lot of people. My husband, who's an introvert, was like, how are you going to function? You know, how do you process this number of people? And I said, well, and I sort of just said off the cuff, well, look, it won't matter because a third of them, I won't like them. And I'm, I'm extremely judgmental. And I really like that about myself. I call it my superpower of discernment and that I instantly kind of get a feel for people if I like them or if I don't. And if I don't feel like they're someone I'm interested in, I just don't really expend any energy. I'm not rude, but I certainly don't go out of my way to expend any energy on them. It's sort of like a triage, really, where I go, right, you're adorable. You come over here. You're okay. You can stay where you are. And you, I don't think you're my person. You can just keep well away. Thanks very much. And I've always used that sort of process when I meet people. And I sort of, I reckon a third of the people that you meet are the people who, what I call are in your lickable third. They're the people that you go, oh my God, I love hanging out with you. You're so great. And when I'm with you, my life is better than before. And so then when I started talking about this theory and people were like, oh, I get that. And it just was sort of snowballed from there. And then I started doing some research. Like I went through my husband's football team and said, right, tell me about all these guys. And a third of them, he was like, they're just the best blokes in the world. <laughs> and a third of them was like, just idiots. And I was like, okay, good. Then I went through like all of, I listed out all of my family and we, you know, actually, how do I really feel about these people if they were all optional? And everything works out in thirds. And I think that really a third of our lives are just a waste of time. Like a third of the stuff you have in your house and a third of your clothes, a third of the people you know, they're just not adding any value. And I think I always like to think that if I had a room where I had my favorite 30% of my clothes and my favorite people and my favorite cups and my favorite pens and my favorite books, imagine how beautiful that room would be. And you just want to spend your life in it instead of putting up with average stuff that you don't care about so it kind of goes the lickable third is really a theory for improving your life by just being more discerning and getting rid of a third of the crap and that's also includes people it's such a fantastic philosophy I've certainly spent a lot of my life saying about people you're not my people and embracing those who are and being and having mediocre thoughts to the rest yeah as a story in The Lickable Third about my daughter, and when she was about eight, there was a girl in her class that was really mean to her, and she kept pulling her hair, and, you know, she probably wanted to be your friend and didn't just didn't know how to go about it, so she just kept sort of annoying her physically all the time, and it got really out of control, and I was trying to give Ruby strategies to manage it, and then in the end, I said to Ruby, you've kind of got to force a crisis, you're going to have to call this and actually say, you need to stop this behavior, and in front of the teacher, so the teacher, is her attention's drawn to it. All of a sudden, the teacher called the girls in and said, oh, you two have to be friends. And I was so wild. And I went down to the school and I said, they do not have to be friends. Like, yes, they have to function and they have to be classmates, but don't force them to be friends. Anyone should be forced into being a friend. It's like, yes, I'm going to tolerate you, but I'm actually not going to be your friend. I think there's this awful PC stuff out there where you've got to be nice to everyone. It's like, no, you don't have to be everyone's friend. 
I think there's someone for everyone, but I don't think everyone's for everyone. I totally agree with you. Look, there's someone else out there that would love to hang out with you, but it's not me. (laughs) Thank you very much anyway. Yeah, and I agree with you. There's people for everybody, but not everybody for you. And that's a philosophy that I've always had. And I was listening to Alan Elder's podcast recently, and one of the questions he asks at the end is, have you ever ended a friendship? And I thought, yeah, all the time, because people come into your life for, you know, a reason, a season or forever. And if it's a reason, then when that reason's gone, then you don't need to continue. And that's not to say you're not going to be friendly if you don't see them, but that's really different to being a friend. Absolutely. When I run workshops and things and I say to people, you know, I said to this woman once, who's your best friend? And she said, oh, I have a wonderful best friend. She lives in Christchurch. And I said, oh, how long have you seen her? And she said, three years. I'm like, I said, I don't think she's your best friend. I think she's someone you used to know. And there's a massive difference. And you do outgrow people and people move on. And and then you get delicious new people that pop up in your world and you go, oh, you're my everything right now, you know, and you've got to make room for them too. And sometimes people come back. Like I had a lot of friends when I was in my 20s. I had a lot of friends who had babies and their babies are all adults now. And so those friendships are cycling back because we are kind of getting back to the same stage of life I guess that we were when we when we first met as young women who were single and it's beautiful to rekindle some of these relationships and some of them I'm really grateful for and I know that the friendships will get back to that way that they were 20 25 years ago and some of them I look at these people and think what did we ever see in each other (laughs) because there is nothing there now (laughs) yeah Absolutely. I love that. Yeah, it's great. So I learned something about you recently that really intrigued me and that I loved, and that's that you're a funeral celebrant. Yeah, I love funerals. Why do you do funerals and not weddings or christenings? Or- well, I do do weddings reluctantly. I've been asked, to, I've, I am officially a wedding celebrant, but I only do them for people who I know and love. Yeah, I've been doing weddings for, for years, but I um just friends, you know, basically my rule is if I'm invited to the wedding anyway, then I will marry you, but I'm not going to turn up and marry strangers. I don't care. Because that's that, again, it comes back to that connection piece. Like I think there's nothing better than if you're getting married than having someone marry you who knows you and understands you. So yeah, I do quite a few funerals. I really, really enjoy them. I think that, I just think they're so important as a piece where you get to learn about people. Usually at a good funeral, you come away knowing something you didn't know about that person before you went in. And I think it's a really important time to honour the person who's died as their last foray, you know. So I think sit around and laugh and cry and tell stories and share all their favourite food, their favourite stuff, and just celebrate them. And because I'm very comfortable with death, I don't find that weird at all. So I'm, I'm very calm about death. And I've done some really difficult funerals. Like I've done a 15-year-old girl. I've done um, my cousin who committed suicide. I've done a lot of really, really traumatic funerals of people who, you know, not just lovely old people that have just popped their clogs in their late 80s, but actually quite traumatic situations. But um, I have a really deep spiritual belief about, you know, basically souls don't die without their permission. And so at some level, there's a reason. And it's about acceptance and how do we make sense of it for the people left behind? Yeah, I love it. I re- and it's such an honour to be with people when they're at their messiest and they're, and they're most traumatised, I think. And I love the messiness of humanity. Like I love getting right down and, 
in the middle of stuff. I love it. I really wish I'd known you when my father died because the celebrant that officiated over his funeral got my mother's name wrong, my name wrong. I'm surprised he got dad's name right, (laughs) but he was terrible. Isn't that awful though? You're grief stricken and you've got all your important people around you and you're trying to honour your dad and this guy can't get it like your name. I know. And by the end, everybody was just laughing because he was just getting things. It was like faulty towers. It was just one more thing after one more thing after one more thing. And, and, you know, we can laugh about it now, but at the time it was just, oh, what else are you going to get wrong? (laughs) Yeah. Awful, right? And it's to me, it's about how can we make this as comfortable as possible? Oh, I know. My friend's father's funeral um, just last week. And, you know, it was so lovely. I sat with his six grandchildren who were between sort of 25 and, and nine. And, and they, these wee, poor wee girls were all trying to make sense of why their papa wasn't there anymore and how they were going to live without papa. And, and, you know, the little ones were like, this is really unfair. And, and I was like, yeah, but you've got so many lovely things to hang on to. And so I sat with them all and we wrote all their favorite stories. And, and it was just so cool. And by the end of it, they were really like, oh, wow, I'm so lucky to have had papa. And I'm like, could you share some of these stories? And if you can't, that's fine. But it would be really nice if you could. And they all were so brave and and were really proud of themselves afterwards. And I think it really helped them kind of process their grief, you know. Humans are so scared of grief and we're all scared. Oh, I don't want someone to see me cry. And, oh, what if I can't speak? And it's like, oh, you know what, if you bloody blow a big snot bubble all over this all over the lectern and fall about it doesn't matter your father's dead like you're allowed to you're allowed to fall about and be human I think it gives other people permission I love it exactly one of the things we did at both mum's and dad's funerals or before the funeral was we went out to all of their friends and all of our relatives and asked them for stories and we incorporated as many of those as we could in the eulogy but we also did up these storyboards with printed out stories that people had emailed us over the week before with photos from the different stages of their lives. And it was just fantastic because it was great for my brother and I as a part of the grieving process, but it was also great for people who hadn't seen them for a while or who only knew them for the aspect of their lives that where they were at that time and didn't know, you know, the 40 years beforehand where they lived in different countries and had different experiences. So It was just such a beautiful way to help deal with a really shitty couple of days. (laughs) That's so nice. And that's what it's about. It's about immersing yourself for three or four days in just their energy, their thinking, what they liked, thinking about their favourite songs, their stories, their memories, who their favourite people are, what their special bits were. And, you know, it's a really short time and um, I think it's really, it's a useful time to honour people. It is. Yeah. And I think by asking other people as well, a lot of the stories that came in I'd never heard and my brother had never heard and some of the stories about mum, dad had never heard because they were from her childhood and they were that. told there was so much laughter. There were so many bad 1970s photos <laughs> that were sent to us and it was just fantastic and it was it really made um, what could have been well, what was a really difficult day just a little bit easier. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough about death for now because we're talking about being magnificent. We've just got a few minutes left. So I want to ask, are there any particular books or podcasts that have really impacted you? Ooh, I love Russell Brand's podcast. I love how irreverent he is. I love how super clever he is. He has very irreverent kind of thoughts and he challenges people, which I find, you know, I find that really interesting. Did you listen to his episode with Brene Brown? Oh, yeah, loved it. Oh, that was just so fantastic. Have you ever heard his one with Byron Katie? She's no. 
old teacher that I've followed for probably 30 years. I love the podcast with her. She's a very interesting woman. And she's he's just beautiful with her, like just beautiful. She's now, I think, nearly 80. He's just so magnificent with her. And I, yeah, I love him. I think he's great. And I find him always interesting. And I never quite know where he's going to go. And that holds my attention. And then books. I love books. I'm such a book junkie. I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with high performance teams. So people who are either at the top of their game and want to get better or teams that want to lift their performance. I'm reading a great book at the moment called Perform Under Pressure, which is written by Kerry Evans. And he's the psychiatrist that works with the All Blacks. Mm-hmm. And he works with high performance organisations. But he was very instrumental in Richie McCaw's career as creating him as a brilliant captain and teaching him to perform under pressure and how to rise up and become a leader when it wasn't a natural thing for him to do. Like he found that quite challenging. And the way to how to function, you know, under pressure in New Zealand, when you're the captain of the All Blacks, you literally have the whole country sitting on your shoulders when you go out on that field. Mm. And far be it if you do anything wrong, like everyone goes on about it. Ironically, I'm reading a book about ADHD um, because (laughs) I never read one book at a time, which is actually a very big symptom. (laughs) Of ADHD. There's another great book called Faster Than Normal, which is the secrets of an ADHD brain and how to turbocharge your focus and productivity when your brain's kind of really busy. Mm, I like it's that. by Paul Shankman and it's fantastic. And he writes books and the only way he writes his books is he books himself on a round the world trip and he doesn't get off the plane until the book's written. I feel like I need to do that because my next book's due at the editor in 12 days and I'm about wow. 25,000 words to go still. Oh, so straight to the airport, Mel, and just get on a plane. Because I find when I'm on a plane, I work incredibly well because I'm literally locked in a seat. Mm. And now they've put Wi-Fi onto internet. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Because now I can buy shoes while I'm on a plane. So that's not helpful. Um, I actually need to be in a seat where they put the seatbelt sign on and I can't move and I have nothing to do other than work. It's a really it's a really good book, Faster Than Normal, it's called. It's great. Okay, I'll pop that in the show notes for everybody listening. Where can people find you if they'd like to learn more about you? They can find me at just lisaoneill.co.nz, which is L-I-S-A-O-N-E-I-L-L. So that's my website and there's and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and all those social things, you know, which I quite like. I find social media so inspiring and I think people need to embrace the fun stuff. People are also judgmental and, oh, social media is terrible. It's like, no, it's not. It's fun. It's only as good as the user, you know. If you don't like it, you're not doing it properly, I think. If you're following really boring, judgmental people or you're feeling shit about your life because you're actually buying into that 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 person's life's perfect then you're on the wrong channels like I follow really interesting creative funny people and I find social media such a delight and for me if it's got to entertain me make me think or make me laugh and if it doesn't do one of those three things then it's gone yeah I agree I'm having a love affair with Twitter again that was my first social media channel oh nice 10 12 years ago that I just loved and met so many amazing people on there that converted into real life friendships and I had a bit of a sort of a I don't know less of a love for a while and I'm back in it and I've seen a few people recently say oh I'm getting off Twitter it's too political it's too unpleasant there's too much judgmental nasty viciousness and I just thought I don't really see any of that and then I thought I don't see it because I don't follow those people and 
every now and then I'll mute everything about American politics so I can't get depressed about what's happening over there. And if it gets too much, then, you know, there's ways around it without leaving it. And I think people need to realise that they are in control and that there's ways to become more in control of it so that it doesn't have a detrimental effect on your state of mind. It's the same as anything in life, right? It's like, just get in charge. Exactly. And, you know, it's like, I read this really cool thing the other day that said something about if you're going to be offended, just don't go on the internet. And it's like, you know, it's basically like stepping in the middle of a dog turd and then going, oh, bugger. It's like, well, just don't go there. Like, just don't go there if people offend you. And, you know, but people are so bored and they, they want to actually be offended and they want to whinge and they want to get up in arms about. We've got local body elections going on here in New Zealand and it's just appalling. The people that are just trying to ruin each other's lives on social media, it's like, just switch off. Like, why would you do Life's too short. Why would you just give yourself a whole feed of negativity and horrible people? Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Unfollow, unfollow, unfollow. <laughs> Thank you so much. I can promise you I will not be unfollowing you. I will be very pleased that you follow me now and I'm always following you. Thank you. Thank you, Mutual Admiration Society. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. I've loved our chat. I love all of my guests, but I love when they make me laugh. So thank you for that and appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you again soon and giving you a big cuddle. And Yay. And please, please don't lick me. <laughs> I might. I just might. I just don't know. <laughs> Oh, no. You'll meet Sean in November because he's coming to Sydney, which is when we're going to catch oh, up yeah, next. And, well, he'll be editing these show notes. So, hi, Sean. And he'll hear that I just told you that he told me he loved me on our first date and he's just going to go, you've done what? <laughs> that is so cute, though. What a cute story. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's good. We'll be able to meet Mark when I bring him to Sydney. So, there you go. We'll be all we'll be oh, all no, meet up I together. fessed up to Sean recently that even after we bought our house together, I still wasn't sure whether I'd made the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> good honesty you've got to be honest though right you can't be with someone you can't be honest with that's no point exactly and on that note thank you again and i'll see you soon thanks so much talk soon well that's it for this episode thank you so much for listening if you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn, or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at melkettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye. Bye.